Hello, I'm Paul Bainspare and I am the Director General of the IPA. This is the first IPA podcast and what I'm going to do is find a collection of interesting people, well I hope they're interesting, and talk to them about advertising. There'll be people from advertising, there'll be people who used to work in advertising, there'll be people whose uh, world touches our world in, in some way. And the first guest is Lord Dobbs of Wiley, better known as Michael Dobbs, the author of House of Cards, which of course is now a big hit on Netflix. Um, I first met Michael back in um, the 1980s uh, when we were both working at Sargent's. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk to him now as we're in the middle of this um, run-up to the election about his involvement in political advertising and, and subsequently how that led him to write the book House of Cards. Well, here I am in deepest Wiltshire with, with Michael Dobbs. Um, Michael, hello. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us. It's going to be great fun. It's a, oh, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you informally rather than across a, an advertising table. Well, let's, mm. let's see how we get on. Um, I thought I'd start by asking you uh, a little bit about your early career. I mean, we first met um, at the, well, around about 1980, I think, uh, at Sarches, yeah. where we were both working at the time. But how did you, how did you get into advertising? Where, where had you been before? Oh, my professional life has all been the result of cock-ups. Um, nothing has been planned. Uh, I, I suppose it all started when I fell in love with an American girl uh, while I was studying at Oxford. And I pursued her back to America to do postgraduate work simply because that was the only excuse I had. She lived in New York. I lived, I went to school in Boston. And on my map, they were only half an inch apart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of the way that I go about these things. That, that didn't work. But I, ca- I came back... Um, Five years later, having had a marvellous time uh, with a doctorate in nuclear strategic studies, as one does. That's handy. Of daily use to my future career in advertising, as you can imagine. (laughs) And I went straight to work for for the Conservative Party. Uh, And and that, again, was a a cock-up. I met a guy in a pub and, you know, it went... It turned out that they offered me a job. The Conservative Party offered me a job in their research department. And very quickly, I found myself working directly for Margaret Thatcher, who was then leader of the opposition. Now, this was a time when she was much derided. I mean, silly woman never had a chance of becoming prime minister, did she? It was all been a horrible mistake, which would be corrected immediately. She lost the the forthcoming election. So I worked for her, found her astonishing, Uh, not easy, uh, but uh, really quite inspiring. We won historically the 1979 election. I was the first person on election night in 1979 to be able to turn around to her and say, congratulations, you've become prime minister. That was called my little bit of history. It wow. really was. Um, but after that, it became clear to me that the, uh, I, think I, I think she was paying me £2,000 a year and even in 1979, that, that wasn't, wasn't, a lot that of wasn't money. so much. No. Um, so I, I then went looking around for what I deemed to be a proper job, and uh, some extraordinary chap called Tim Bell uh, at this place called Saatchi and Saatchi offered me a job, and I, I went to him for a cup of tea and asked his advice. And I said, "Do you know of anybody who's going to offer somebody with a background as ridiculous as mine a large sum of money for doing?" very little uh, when they're qualified for almost nothing and he said well, I, I can only think of one person and I said who's that and he said he said me 
And I looked at him and I said, well, but who are you? Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't actually figured out that Tim ran Saatchi and Saatchi at that time. Anyway, uh, to cut the, the, the story short, uh, uh, lots of people said, for God's sake, don't touch it with a barge pole. I said, this is the most exciting uh, steps that I've ever stepped up because you went into the foyer entrance at Charlotte Street and everything was buzzing. Mm. And I said, I want to be part of this. Mm. And that is completely blind, completely uh, unknowing. I ended up working at that fabulous place called Saatchi and Saatchi uh, in 1979. Well, we, I mean, they were great days. We were both lucky to be there at the time. Um, and I think the funny thing was we knew we were lucky as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's a, it's a good time to be talking about you because we've got the election coming up now. Um, what, what do you think about political advertising? Do you think, it, do you think it's as important as perhaps uh, the uh, media would make it? Uh, what's your view on that? Well, of course, I'm, I suppose I'm prejudiced and biased, and I joined Saatchi shortly after the, the Labour isn't working advertising uh, campaign, although, of course, it wasn't a campaign. We reinvent so much stuff afterwards. Uh, but it was undoubtedly notorious and, and highly talked about, which is one of the secrets. Um, and I know at least 28 people who were personally responsible and solely responsible for creating yes. that campaign. Success has many fathers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Failure is a bastard. Yeah. Um, but, but political advertising, yeah, a lot of money is wasted on political advertising, and I you know, helped waste a lot of it in my 13 years that I stayed on and off at, at Saatchi's. But it has a, uh, advertising has an impact which goes way beyond the, the, the simple posters and, and television uh, broadcasts and, and, and press campaigns that they deliver. It's to bring a sense of discipline to political communication, which is usually chaotic. Mm. Politicians normally have absolutely no idea how to communicate effectively with the, the, the outside world. They're so busy talking to each other in that bubble called Westminster. What advertising and what Saatchi's did, and I think was worth every penny is to actually bring that all together and say, what it is, what is it in communication terms that you require to do? And to come up with a strategy, a focus, uh, 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 on the basis not of prejudice, but actually of, of principle and, of course, of research, knowing what the public will accept. So what I did when I was both at Saatchi and Saatchi and the Conservative Party, and I spent many years going backwards and forwards between the two, is to try to bring a sense of, of, of purpose and understanding to communication such that um, the advertising, of course, is only one small part of political communication. Mm. Uh, what is, in many cases, much more important is the other parts where politicians themselves are so important. The speeches they make, the, the, the way that they present policies is, is so important. Advertising can support that. It can never take the place of true political uh, communication, but it can support it and it can discipline it. And this is what, throughout the 80s, uh, that I think we achieved spectacularly yeah. successfully. I mean, were, were the so-called spin doctors as important back then as, as they are now? I mean, or were, do you think the agency had a bigger role than perhaps it might expect to have now? Did we exaggerate our role? Did we allow others to exaggerate our role? Of course we did. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's, that's part of the world. But um, we really did uh, 
in, in difficult times. I mean, one of the most difficult periods was, uh, for instance, 1986, when it looked as if the Conservative government was, was falling apart, it was scrapping amongst itself. It was the time that Michael Heseltine resigned spectacularly and very publicly. Over the Westland um, affair. Over yeah. Westland. Um, and we had to, the party had to put it all back together again. Sarches and the communication, the fundamental communications disciplines that we were so used to um, played a, a great role in that. Uh, it, it gave us a, a fresh sense of purpose, said, look, this is the message, this is what we need to do. Not changing, not telling them what to do in terms of policy, but simply saying, this is your policy, these are your values, this is the way to communicate them, this is the order in which you should get mm. those messages out. And a party that was all at sea in 1985 and going down in the opinion polls quite spectacularly came back in 1987 mm. and won a huge election victory. Now. <laughs> the history books will tell you there was a lot of, 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 of difficulty about that and you know, perhaps more than one advertising agency. But pushing all that to one side for the moment, the fact that we were able to show the politicians what was required and to raise their sights above the, 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 mm. the, 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 the tactical and the, um, the, the daily to have a, a long-term strategy which they were able to pursue was absolutely crucial. And that is what communications professionals can do. Advertising per se, of course, in, in political terms, has its ups and downs. I don't know of many advertising campaigns which on their own have been able to turn, for instance, elections uh, around. Uh, and advertising has its own very specific role. It, it, it works better when it's negative. Labour isn't working, for instance. Mm. Easy to be in opposition advertising well, uh, and defending yes, your record. It's, it's, it's easy to be negative, say, but mm. it leaves the other hugely important part of political communication, which is the positive side, it leaves that up to the politicians themselves in a disciplined and focused fashion. And it's, a, it's only one of the many tools that a political party has. So it's, it's an important tool, but it's never done all the job and never... I don't think it's ever pretended to do all the job. Mm. I suppose um, it, it would be remiss of me not to talk to you a little bit about Margaret Thatcher, uh, the person, because, you know, she's now passed into history as this huge political um, figure or leader. And it seems that most people, she's very polarising, either love her or hate her. I mean, you knew her, you worked with her, you um, you fell out with her in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, can you talk to us about her? What was she like as a person? I mean, you... As a, as a, as a person, fascinating. Uh, flawed, like all great leaders. I mean, you go back through history and every single great leader has huge flaws. And that's why they're great, because they have to struggle so hard to overcome mm. those flaws that, they are, that they're, they're different from the rest of us. A bit like and, creative directors. Yeah, know, agencies. absolutely. Yeah. You know, they work Working harder, they, they, yeah. they get more intense. Um, so she, she was never... I never found her easy to deal with. Uh, I was perhaps a bit too young because actually she was very feminine. To those, th th those who, uh, who were part of her, her private circle, those who were able to treat her as a woman, and tell Margaret, you're wonderful. What a gorgeous dress that, 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 that is you're wearing today. I mean, I had a, an instant attraction for mm. her and, and to her. And uh, I was never quite in that... <laughs> I, I was always uh, perhaps slightly terrified of her, uh, but she was what 
in communications terms, what she was, was splendid because she knew what it is she wanted. She knew what it is she stood for. And there was a, there was a clear product there. Um, we, we didn't, never had to go out and have a focus group to, to tell her what she believed in or what no. she should do. Advertising and the research played the complementary role which it's supposed to. She knew what it is and the party knew what it is they stood for. We were able to go and say, okay, that's what you stand for. This is the way to get to where it is you're going. This is the way to communicate all that. We were never in a position of telling her, this is what the public want. Mm. Um, uh, or if we were, it was only in order to show her how she should get her own views and the party's views across to the public. And uh, if I have a criticism of, of, of where we are today, um, I think it is that, that, that sometimes we, we neglect the fact that like all great companies or corporations or concerns, political parties require absolute clarity in what it is they stand for if they are to communicate that successfully. And where the confusion arrives in modern politics is politicians running after the electorate saying, mm. what, do, what do I need to say? What do you want to hear from me? Rather than saying, this is what I'm about. Please trust mm. me. Please put your trust in me. You mentioned that Margaret Thatcher was either loved or hated. Actually, what she was mostly was respected. She was never really loved by most people out there. Mm. And, and we never ran around uh, actually, there were some people who ran around saying, oh, the Tory party doesn't have a caring image. We must do something about this. Well, why? <laughs> um, if people insist on saying that, 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 that Margaret Thatcher doesn't care about us, are we going to spend our time saying, well, she really does? Or actually reminding them about why she was mm. there and what she had done in other areas. You play to your strengths, not your weaknesses. Political parties very often play to their weaknesses and forget about their strengths. Mm. And uh, you know, the fundamentals which communications experts can bring to political parties can do a huge amount of good in, in supporting them, but they can never take over from them. No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think in the run-up to this election, it almost seems, not talking about the advertising now, but the various leading parties seem to be falling over themselves to out-offer to the to the electorate something every day you know they've offered that but we'll offer this it's almost like they're trying to sell themselves rather than be you know conviction politicians but, but there has been a huge change in political communication over the last 20 years and there's been a huge change in communication everywhere um it was it was uh we, particularly with social media and the instant um the instant uh, communications tools that we have very, very different from the way that we ran campaigns in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, and, and, and I think that's helped. <laughs> Finally, we've got more communication, but it's helped to blur things mm. rather than to clarify things. And that's one of the challenges that political parties and indeed companies, all of us, have to, to meet is to say, with all this clutter around, this noise that's around, how do we get our own specific message through? Uh, in 140 whatever it is characters that we tweet um, we're in a crossover period right now I don't know any politician who's got it sorted and, and, and knows exactly what we should be doing but um, they're, they're, it's something that we just have to deal with mm. it's a very interesting parallel in, in, in general marketing consumer 
goods marketing to what you've just said. You know, there's just so many ways to communicate now. One sometimes stands back and says, well, I'm not sure that that many clients have really mastered all of these different, this plethora mm. of channels um, and, and, and can cut through and be clear about what they stand for. Mm. So I mentioned earlier that you fell out with um, Margaret Thatcher. Um, Everybody I, fell out with I know, Margaret. but I want to know about that, how you fell out with her. Would, Tell that, us about that. That was, uh, you know, she was a woman of total conviction and immense drive. That's why she got things done. And you only get things done, you only change things by first of all breaking the, what is there at present. And when you break things up, of course it causes fury, hatred at times, um, before you're able to rebuild it. I happen to think that Margaret Thatcher will be seen as a totally historic figure, a, a woman who has, um, who, who, who changed the shape of this country, I personally think largely for the better, but I entirely understand why so many people uh, disliked it and, and hated the process. You know, that is part of part of greatness, if you like. You don't become great by, you know, offering everybody tea and cake. <laughs> um, and what and the what we felt. I mean, I was with her from nineteen seventy six all the way through till nineteen. 86, I mean, 10 extraordinary years, uh, with a ringside seat on history. Um, it, I, politics is a rough, tough business, and you never go into it expecting and hoping to be cuddled. That's not the point. Uh, and yet we fell out spectacularly. Uh, do Did I mind? Yes, it hurt a great deal. Um, does it change my view on her in an historical context? Not at all. You know, uh, I think she was getting to the end of her, her, her usefulness because everybody has a, a shelf life and she, her shelf life was much longer <laughs> than most. Uh, that, that's not a criticism, it's just a, you know, the fact that almost every single Prime Minister that we have ever had in the last hundred years has had to be chopped, hacked, knifed, dragged out of office. Because Ooh, they never, political never careers go. destined to end in failure. Or exactly, and, and the higher you get, the bigger the fall. Um, but we fell out. Um, uh, we fell out. It, 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 it was utterly bizarre in a way. I was the chief of staff of the party, um, and when I'd taken on that job, somebody had reminded me of of the the two political chiefs of staff that we could remember. One was Bob Haldeman, who was chief of staff to President Richard Nixon. I think he was an ex advertising man. Wasn't he? he was an ex advertising yeah. man. Absolutely, and they they let him out of on of jail after on parole after three years of us I think it's a seven year sentence. And the other one was Martin Borman, who was chief of staff of oh, Hitler. Now I'm not sure he was ever in advertising, but somebody shot him. So uh, to be able to be chief of staff and actually to be able to walk out the door, even if I was gently encouraged out the door, uh, was was I think quite a triumph. Uh, it was in the run up to the nineteen eighty seven election campaign. Uh, as I said, the party had been going through a terrible time from after 1985. And uh, uh, th there were too many personal egos and ambitions in I involved. Uh, she, I, I later came to understand that she believed that I was plotting with Norman Tebbit to get rid of her and to uh, for Norman to take her place, which was utterly bizarre because Norman had already decided that he had to retire from cabinet after the 
the next election, the 87 election, uh, because, of course, he had to go and take care of his, uh, mm, his wife, Margaret, who yes. had been so, so terribly injured in the Grand Hotel bombing. Um, it, but this, this is the stuff of politics. You, you, 1984, we were all there in the Grand Hotel putting our necks on the line, and some of our friends didn't make it. I mean, politics had a real price to pay in those days. You, you, you took none of that for granted. I had several friends who were murdered in that period. And, you know, that was part and parcel of the job. You could say the same thing about miners. You, you knew that there was a, a risk to be taken going down that hole in the ground and that sometimes something would happen and people wouldn't come out. Mm. Um, but it was a very serious time. 1984, we a spectacular election victory in 1983. Uh, the Brighton bomb in 1984. 1985, it all looked to be falling apart. And the struggle to put it back together again in 1986 and in 1987 was very intense. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of people got very upset. Um, upset at times over advertising. I remember one meeting, one extraordinary meeting during the 1987 election campaign, uh, a week before the poll, when some people thought we were just about to lose. A week later, we, re we won by over 100 seats with a record vote. But some people thought we were going to lose. Um, that's the nature of politics. And she, 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 she picked up a piece of advertising for which I had absolutely no responsibility. Uh, having been with Saches and gone to central office and back and forth, I made absolutely sure that I had uh, 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 nothing to do with the day-to-day -day running the advertising campaign. It, it would have been improper. Mm. Um, so I left it to a chap that you will very well know, a chap called John Sharkey. Mm, I do, of course. <laughs> and uh, ex-business um, partner. And I remember picking up one of the ads on that day and saying, but the print's so small, nobody will be able to read it. Well, actually, there wasn't a lot of print on the ad, and it was at least two to three times the size of the regular copy that was uh, the, 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 the appearing in newspapers. So if you were picking up a newspaper to read it, there was a jolly good chance <laughs> you could <laughs> actually read, read the ad. Yeah. But look, these things aren't a matter of logic. They're a matter of passion, of emotion, of, of uh, changing times. And my time was coming to an end with, with, with Margaret. It was a great sorrow. Um, and and we, we made up for it afterwards. But th these things happen. Uh, would I change anything? If I went back, I, would, I, I think I would um, you know, put a soft mattress on the, uh, in the street when they threw me out <laughs> so I could have some, something to bounce on. But, but actually, you know, no, I mean, it was fabulous. The, it was incredibly exciting. And, you know, if, if you didn't have the downs, you wouldn't be able to yeah. appreciate the great heights that we managed but, to but climb. I, I think I'm right in saying that there is a, there is a thread that, that kind of connects your, 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 the next stage of your career, which, of course, is a writer, to that, to that moment. I'm, I'm thinking of what might have inspired you to sit down and write House of Cards. Oh. Uh, well, I started writing House of Cards literally a couple of weeks after the 1987 election campaign. Um, I was, uh, uh, I, I was I'd taken my wife on holiday, or rather she had taken me on holiday for the first time in, I think, two and a half years. And politics is like that. Um, it doesn't pay you, 
and you get no time. Why anybody does it, I don't know. The so lust for power. Um, yeah, we were we were on on, on holiday, and I was um, uh, I was being pretty appalling, being very rude about a book, and that I was reading. And she turned around to me. She said, "Look." Um, Stop being so bloody pompous, she said. If you think you can do any better, for goodness sake, go and do it. But I haven't come away on holiday for the first time in two and a half years to listen to you go on about this wretched book that you're reading. So with encouragement like that, I took myself down to the swimming pool uh, with a pad and a pencil and, and a bottle of wine. And I said, can I write a book? I had, I had no ambition to become a writer. I had no intention of becoming a writer. But um, I sat there just trying to think what I would write about. And I'd been going, I'd just gone through this very, very bruising, bloody period almost. And still obviously, obviously need a therapy, I suspect, mm. because by the time I'd finished that bottle of wine, all I had on my pad were, were two, was, was two initials, F-U. <laughs> and I, I, I guess <laughs> there was a lot of what I'd, just been through that was coming out there um, and anyway I, I came back the following day with another bottle of wine I said I'm enjoying this process it seems to be quite therapeutic F.U. turned into Francis Urquhart that's why he's called Francis Urquhart because uh, because of the initials F.U. the anti-hero of the book the book became House of Cards uh, House of Cards became a best-selling book it became an award-winning major BBC television series and Aren't I a Lucky Boy? It's now a huge global success. Uh, Francis Urquhart has become Fra uh, Francis Underwood because the Americans cannot get their awards around Urquhart. And, um, uh, and you, you know, so out of, I owe it all to being beaten up by Maggie. Hey, you know. How amazing, bad. yeah. That <laughs> so how, I mean, I expect that there might be one or two budding writers or authors listening to this um how i mean how did the transition i mean it's one thing to write a book i mean that's difficult enough how did it get onto the silver screen or onto the television screen at least um did, did, they, did they find you or did you did you go and sort of knock on doors and try and make it happen um it, 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 it's quite long i mean I, I wrote that book 28 years ago so the fact that the, the Prime Minister of Kazakhstan recently came to me and said, I've waited over 20 years for this meeting. I just love House of Cards. <laughs> and um, and, and gave, gave me, I must tell you, he presented me with his own personal copy from his library of his, of his copy of House of Cards in Russian. Uh, very well thumbed. Quite clearly he had read it and um, read it several times. And, and he inscribed it beautifully for me. And I was absolutely uh, uh, gobsmacked. I, I couldn't say a word. Partly because, you know, this the Prime Minister of Kazakhstan had given me this great honour. This is a but, but, but also because I suddenly realised that I had never signed a publishing contract in Russian. Uh, uh, so, so, <laughs> so quite obviously this was... A, so uh, someone had ripped you off in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's probably a whole pile of rubles <laughs> waiting for me somewhere. But... So how did this all happen? I s sat down beside that swimming pool and I loved the ideas that suddenly started bubbling away. I thought, I'm, I'm enjoying this process. So when people come to me and say, you know, how do I become a writer? Whether it be a writer of books or TV scripts or anything, there's only one answer, that is to write. Mm. 
you know, um, oh, I've got this idea, I've, I've had this idea for years. Well, sit down yeah. and do it do and it, stop yeah. complaining about it. And it's the only way to do it because it's by writing that you will improve uh, what it is you have to offer. I'm a much better writer now than when I wrote House of Cards, at least I hope I am, because in many ways I think that was a somewhat naive effort. Uh, writers, like everybody else, you improve your skills as you do the job. Um, and, and writing for yourself, I mean, and there will come a point in that process where somebody else says, actually, I like the way you write and I'm going to pay you for it. Um, how my, my initial book got onto um, the screen was a, a stroke of luck. I had an agent who uh, said, this is a, a different type of book and it fitted the times. Mm. This fitted the times of where people are getting quite cynical about politics. Um, and, uh, and so extraordinarily, the, the first episode of House of Cards, uh, the BBC production of House of Cards, which starts off with Francis Urquhart looking at a framed photograph of Margaret Thatcher and turning around to the screen and saying, nothing lasts forever. Oh, yes. <laughs> and placing it face down. That appeared on the screen the very week she was forced out of Downing Street. It was extraordinary. Well, yes, I mean, you could, I mean, because all the lead times involved in production would have meant that must have been just... However much you might have wanted that to happen, no, a complete I, fluke. I kept telling them that they couldn't possibly be putting out in November because of the leadership crisis. Uh, and in February of 1917, uh, 1990, they were saying, well, what crisis? They, had, they couldn't conceive of it. I saw it. They didn't listen. So it was all, again, another one of life's great cock-ups. Eh? My, my, because my, my added, life added to the power of, of you know, what, what people were seeing on the screen, but that, it, that relationship with what was happening in real life. And it know? was beautifully done. I mm. mean, the BBC made a, a, a fantastic job of it. So I, um, I then, um, uh, uh, you know, I then had been living off that, became a writer, a full-time writer. I gave up my job as deputy chairman of Saatchi and Saatchi with the... The, the huge salary, the expenses, the pension plan, the big car, the, the office, all that, for the security of becoming a self-employed writer. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm the man. Are on you a, mad? <laughs> yes, I'm well, the clearly man not. A, Look at the success I'm, you've enjoyed. Well, yeah. I, I'm the man on a zero, zero hours contract. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. Um, so, uh, and, and the Netflix, the, the new, the, the Kevin Spacey um, re- uh, refurbishment of the whole thing that again was well several people in America have tried to uh, do the American version of House of Cards over the many years and frankly I've become a little blase about the telephone ringing and saying you know we want to do this the telephone did ring with a, an American on there saying uh, hi Mike uh, Mike I hate the name Mike um, hi Mike uh, we want to do a, a new version of House of Cards what do you think and I said look fine um, come back with a, a proposal and of course I would be willing to talk to you. And they, a few months passed and they came back and said, Hi Mike, uh, we still want to do House of Cards. And we've got Kevin Spacey and David Fincher on board. What do you think? I sat there saying, I'm required to think. <laughs> Where do <laughs> I, mean, I sign? This is, yeah. <laughs> this is, this is, this is fabulous. Um, I mean, nothing that Spacey and Fincher were going to do um, was going to be anything less than than, yeah, than fantastic, yeah, and, and again, the, the 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 political mood has changed, and, it, and it's in this wonderful era of Obama and 
all this caring and hugging and tree hugging and, 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 and nothing being done because very sadly, I think President Obama has not been a very effective uh, president and the whole system of Washington has conspired of, against yes. anything he might have wanted um, to do. Yeah. They want somebody who can get things done and Frank gets things done. <laughs> yes, not so, always in the best possible way. Yeah. No, but, 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 but people love it. So we've had, we've had a most wonderful time. In all honesty, I expected to get screwed right royally by uh, Hollywood. Um, and uh, I can tell you that this experience with, with Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright and a wonderful writer called Bo Willimon, which you can now see on Netflix, has been the happiest professional experience of my life. They've been wonderful. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Completely opposite of what the, the received view is of Hollywood. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's good to hear. And, and, and I, I ended up falling out with the BBC over the original House of Cards. So it's kind of come full circle, but with a totally different ending. Um, and we are now, uh, I can tell you this without having to kill you by telling you, uh, we're, we're now working on the fourth series. Brilliant. Um, it's uh, another 13 hours of... of Series 4 House of Cards. We're having huge fun and we will carry on until we stop having huge fun. Well, Michael Witt, it's been brilliant talking to you. And um, I, I, I'd like to end the interview by asking you um, three questions. Uh, the first is um, your favourite ad of all time or favourite campaign of all time? Mm. I... I, I I'm, I'm tempted to say uh, Labour isn't working, but that's far too, you know, nerdy and political. So I, I will, I will, um, you and I were part of a revolution uh, in British advertising when, um, when we started, the whole world was run by Americans and there was this silly little British company called Saatchi and Saatchi says, no, we're going to run the world. And uh, a few years later, they were. And one of the things that we did with huge creativity, it was a fantastic time. I mean, we all worked our nuts off, but you know, it was, it was so rewarding, is we created a fantastic campaign for British Airways. Uh, uh, a company that was a, was a joke at one stage, but was reinventing itself, and we invent, reinvented it to the world on the back of some fantastic ads. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel really proud to have been part of an agency that and a part of a Great, time. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it sort of lost in the sounds of time a bit how mm. the the audacity of saying the world's favourite airline yeah. uh, at that time um, really made people mm. sit up and think because it was far from that in terms of the image it had before that campaign. And I still believe that it's great creativity that drives advertising forward. No, it was, it was we a great campaign. We, we in Britain were brilliant at it and I still think... We're, yeah, we're, still, we're, still, we're still yeah. very, very good. No doubt about that. Okay, so good choice. Um, I'm glad it meets with your approval. It, it meets with my approval. What, what about your the more more obvious question? I suppose as a, as an author, what's your favourite book? Can't choose one of your own, obviously. Yeah, wasn't there? It was a famous opera singer on Desert Island Discs that chose all all of the music she chose was her singing, um, well, various arias. But but, but, but like yeah. all authors, I'm incredibly self-critical, and I always think that by the time I've finished a book, it's rubbish. No, no, and, no. and I cast it out into the world, and people are actually usually quite kind about them. But what book would you would you recommend? Um, I, I I think the book that I always go back to, funnily enough, is uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, uh, which I read under the bedclothes by torchlight when I was a kid, um, and and got spanked for it if I was discovered reading under the un, under the uh, the bedclothes. But you know, in a in a cold. Uh, 1950s British house 
with the, the rain rattling against the windows outside, uh, I, I found the way that the, word, the written word could transport me to an entirely different circumstance. And when I read, even when I read Tre Treasure Island today, I can feel the warm sand between, uh, between my toes. I can hear the, 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 the parrots and the, the, the surf bashing right. on the shore. Mm. And uh, I, I'm waiting to meet those wonderful characters that, that he invented. And it, it turned me on to the art of imagination, what imagination can do. And I think if there's any reason why I became a writer, it probably goes back to those, you know, mm. <laughs> under the bedclothes as a boy with a torch. <laughs> well, as long as that's all you were doing under the bedclothes, Michael. Um, so, and last, uh, last question, who's your, who's your hero, dead or alive? Um, anyone from history or anyone in the current, um, you know, kind of scene that you, you, you would regard as your hero? I uh, I don't make it too difficult to answer this. I mean, there, uh, again, I've, I'm fascinated by history. It's, it's, it's uh, and I, as I am by current affairs. So I, I could, there are a million people out there that I could grab, but there's one man that I will. It's Winston Churchill. Why? Because first of all, he was a man with so many problems. Um, the reason he became great is because he was so deeply flawed. Uh, and if he didn't have those flaws, he would not have become great. But he did become great. He um, he was the one man who was able to do his job at that time, and he uh, he changed the world, not quite single-handedly because he had a, a world war going on around him, but it would have all been totally different without him. And yet he had a sense of the absurd and a sense of colour and a sense of creativity which enabled him to write and to speak in terms which still echoed today. Um, he, uh, he, he, he broke the rules and then remade them. So... Um, many people regard him as being a, a two-dimensional cardboard cutout. He's not. I have written four novels about him. I've written a television play about him. I'm writing a stage play about him because there is so much more still to learn from him, not only about himself, but about power, about leadership, uh, and about the, the human condition and how... Uh, frailty can be turned to strength and he has the most extraordinary story run his story a thousand times and 999 times he would have disappeared down the drain mm. but he didn't that one was life-changing was world-changing and that's why I regard him as being the, the greatest Britain I don't think you'd have many disagreeing with you on that one well look Michael Dobbs Lord Dobbs mm. it's been great talking to you Thank you very much. Paul, it's been great fun and good luck. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Michael Dobbs. My next guest will be Tom Knox, the new president of the IPA. And we're going to talk about, amongst other things, um, Tom's new agenda, which is all around advertising, here for good. This has been Paul Bainsfair, and this has been the IPA podcast. <laughs>